How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, you is your ticket below deck. You know, much made in heaven. Get ready for some choppy waters on the brand new season of Below Deck. If I have to do your job, what do I need you for? No, 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 no. Wish you were here. <laughs> Stream every season, every spin-off, and brand new episodes only on Hey You. Welcome to bloodandmud.com podcast, but it's a special edition podcast uh, this week. It's a spin-off series, if you will. Uh, Imagine this is a bit like Falcon Crest to Dallas, only with less hairspray and less soft focus. Um, I'm impressed that that's where you went for the spin-off series. I'm bang I mean, up to date with my references, oh, as yeah. always, Just Josh, as ab- you know. Absolute height to their popularity. This is the first episode of our series I'm calling Rug- Rugbistory, <laughs> which definitely isn't a mouthful, and I'm definitely not trying too hard. No, um, no. Where we attempt to outline and explain the history of rugby in each of the great nations that play it, starting where it all began, which is in England. Um, I am Lee Calvert. I'm the regular host of LondonMud.com podcast, and joining me as usual is uh, Josh Gardner, RugbyShootWatch.com. Hi. Now, one route we could have gone down with this, Josh, is that me and you could have made stuff up for an hour. I mean, <laughs> let's not rule that out for future podcasts. Yeah, indeed. I mean... But we thought it best to get an actual expert on, and we're pleased to welcome uh, with us joining us is the author of several books on rugby history, including the excellent The Oval World. It's Professor Tony Collins. Hiya, Tony. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. No, not at all. Thanks for coming on. The world might be sick of experts, but we're not. We're definitely not sick of experts, yeah. <laughs> um, you can get in touch with the pod at Blood and Mud. You can obviously let us know what you think about this uh, departure into a different territory. We're also available on Apple Podcasts and iTunes and they're the same thing, and Acast and so on. Yes, they uh, Please let us know what you think about this. Uh, we've got quite a bit to cover in this because, as you can imagine, you know, history is a big subject and Tony's here to help us with it. I suppose what I'd like to start with is, Tony, before the Victorians started kind of organising ball games, what what games kind of existed for pastimes in this country, in England? Oh, yeah, I, I, all sorts. I mean, I think we kind of get hung up on the idea that there are organised games and we know what 
rugby is, Union or League, we know what football is. They're all very clearly defined. But really, before, well, before 1800, mm. most games weren't really well defined. You know, generally people would play what they call football, which could be one of these mass games that you get on Shrove Tuesday where half the population of a town play the other half and the goal is that those, three miles is that those away. games they call about uppies versus downies and all that kind uppies, of stuff. Yeah, uppies and downies. <laughs> yeah, you get. I mean, they still. I mean, the ones that they play today, they can't. They're not really the same because they're kind of tourist attraction type things by and large. And there's a lot of mythology about them. But by you know, but these were games that were played uh, going back to certainly to sort of the 1600s. But there are also other football games, just smaller, you know, more organised, more what we would think of as being proper sport in that they had a limited number of players, they had defined rules, uh, and often they'd be played on, you know, a lot of um, towns and villages would have open fields where they'd designate that's where football would be played mm. on the occasions that it was played. So there were lots of all sorts of different variations. And however, having said that, one of the points that I make in the overworld is that when you look at all of them, None of them, uh, as far as anybody can tell, had a rule whereby you could not touch the ball with your hands. Right. So you, the idea that it's, you know, people say, oh, it's football, therefore it must be the the originator of soccer. As in the kicking the ball along the floor. Yeah. Football. Yeah. It, it, it's not really true because football just covered absolutely everything, uh, whether the ball was kicked handled, headed, whatever you want to do with it. Um, so th- this idea that you know, soccer is the original type of football and that what soccer is today is what people played back centuries, you know, going back in centuries, uh, it just, it's just not true. It just doesn't stand up to the historical record. And in a lot of ways, although you know, no, no one game can, cl- can claim that heritage, in a lot of ways, the idea that there is in all the rugby codes that you can handle the ball, you can kick the ball, it's a combination of skills. That's actually more like what was going on in most of these games, you know, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Mm. So that was a kind of football. Did they call it football? Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. I, I mean, again, that, that, it's one of the problems that, I, you know, if you've got a, um, if you're part of the rugby tradition of whatever code, it's, it's a, I always find it annoying that people think because it was called football in the, 18th and early now, well, going back even further, I mean, it's in Shakespeare, football and right. whatever, mm-hmm. um, that people think, oh, it's football, therefore it must be soccer. But it's only it's only really since the end of the First World War that soccer has become associated with the word football. I mean, mm-hmm. my, I mean, I, as you might be able to tell from the accent, I'm from home. My granddad always called rugby football. My granddad did. My great-granddad, yeah, I was from Leah, that's exactly what he said. Yeah, Soccer was always the, the, the association game in his well, world. Association, still, yeah. still down south, they still call rugby footy, you know. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. In the Southern Hemisphere, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and that's kind of come back a bit now with the influence of Australians and New Zealand in, in, uh, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, that, you know, people tend to call it football. But, yeah, it was known, all the different types of football, whether it's union, league, soccer, whatever, were known just generically as football. And it's only when soccer started to become just this huge juggernaut in in Britain that it kind of claimed football as its own name. But it's it's not. 
uh, it doesn't have any more right to it than any other code that we these, get in these folk football games. Sorry, were they were they peculiar to England or were they in every you know nation of of Britain as it was then? Or was oh I, well, I think the there's a great quote. There's an American historian Barbara Tuckman who wrote a um, just an essay where she she made the point that um, in the history of human leisure the invention of the ball is the equivalent of the invention of the wheel is to industry. Yeah. And, and it's so you look at, you look at pretty much anywhere in the world and you go back and people are playing with a ball, whether they're Australian Aboriginal people, they're um, uh, native Americans, uh, Icelandic people, um, you know, Mesoamericans in, 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 uh, uh, in Central America, before the Spaniards got there, everybody's playing something with a ball. Mm. And it's mm. kind of just, it just seems to be part of human nature that people want to kick or throw a ball around and they get entertainment out of it. And, you know, in some circumstances like today, it takes on a meaning all of its own. But yeah, every pretty much every country has some kind of football tradition. They probably didn't call it football. Mm. Um but yeah, it's played. You know, China. Yeah. There's the long tradition of what they called kudju, which was kind of a, a, a foot, uh, you know, foot and ball game. Which which FIFA set blatter in the early 2000s decided that was the people who invented soccer. Uh, <laughs> that was where soccer was, which is just insane. I mean, it's, it's got no connection whatsoever with <laughs> the public school game of the 1860s in Britain. Um, oh, but he was yeah, a mad one, old Sep. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah it, Never made a bad it, or spurious decision, that guy. No, no. <laughs> it, yeah, maybe one, maybe one or two thoughts. But fine, lad. He was always on the ball. Um, yeah. So it's, it's um, so yeah. But it's an example. Of, I mean, it's an example of how people use history for their own purposes. But yeah, there was a um, you know that tradition of here's a ball, let's get two teams and see if we can get it to one end of the pitch or the other end of the pitch. Basically, it's true in almost all human cultures for as long as we know. So when we so bringing that back to rugby, then obviously the game of rugby originated from rugby school, or at least that's that that's sort of story yeah. goes. Although the Web Ellis thing <laughs> has been completely debunked, hasn't it? Well, yeah, it? you would have hoped. Well, you would have hoped so. Well, one of the things that's interesting is it's come back. It's like they, you know, it keeps rising from the grave. Um, I remember years ago, uh, getting on for what we know, getting on for twenty years ago. Um, Jed Smith, who in the early two thousands was a curator of the museum at Twickenham, was wrote in an article that believing that William Mabellis invented rugby is the same as believing that the abominable snowman invented downhill skiing. <laughs> and he, he thought he killed it off, but then um, within the RFU, but then it kind of rose again because, you know, people like stories and... And the World Cup trophy, of course. The, uh, the World Cup trophy, yeah. And just as you get more, you know, and in a sense that... I think what's happened over the last 10, 15 years is that as um, uh, as corporate interests get more and more important in the game, they look for stories to hang their hat on. And so, you know, there's like the, the Web Ellis um, mm. restaurant at Twickenham and all these types of things. And it's kind of come back. And then so you get the last, uh, at the last World Cup in England, 
where there's this the World Cup opening film is oh, um, fucking hell that thing. All, yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> yeah. All about this um, some kid who's supposed to be William Webelli, so runs past uh, all these greats of the past and then hands the ball to Prince Harry. Or what's uh, that? Probably didn't happen, but it was like all that thing. It was like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so it can it's kind of it's it's kind of come back again. The um, but it has no absolutely no evidence. There's absolutely no evidence for it. Did he go to the only thing we know about is he went to the school, didn't isn't it? Yeah, he did. Uh, well, we know he was born in Salford, um, son of a military family, and so you get. Um, you see, nobody from Salford would have invented rugby union. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, so son got, of a military family. Yeah. Yeah, so it's from a military family. Um, there's a kind of, um, so, but that's all. I mean, he was a kind of unremarkable student, although it's claimed that he liked to cheat at games. And so people said, oh, well, he must have invented, must have picked up the ball then. Uh, and then he kind of left the school, uh, became an obscure uh, Anglican vicar and died in southern France, in Montant, uh, uh, just up the road from Nice. That was very nice. What makes me laugh is, with that, with that being a Victorian, you know, nice school, surely if he'd done such a brazen break of the rules, he'd have got battered and put on like water rations for about four weeks he, uh, rather, well, rather than celebrated. <laughs> well, that's the oh. thing. No, but nobody can remember this. You would have thought of such an epochal moment where he's invented a whole new sport. <laughs> At least somebody would have noticed at the time. But when, when, the, when they had the, um, uh, the old Rugbyan Society, the old boys, um, uh, former pupils um, society, uh, had their inquiry in 1895, they couldn't find anybody who'd seen it, despite that there's still people alive who'd been at school then. They couldn't find anybody who had even heard of it happening. Um, so it was. So, but they decided, for reasons um, to do with the state of rugby at the time, uh, and also rugby school's position in, in rugby itself was declining. Um, they decided that they wanted to um, name William Webb Ellis as the originator of rugby, which uh, nobody had ever... Well, not nobody, but hardly anybody had heard of him. Certainly nobody ever thought he'd invented the game. And there were histories being written right up to that point of the game, including very good ones, like uh, Frank Marshall's book in 1892, Football, the Rugby Uni Game, which is, uh, if you look on the internet, you can, you can, find, you can download it for free. It's on, uh, right. it's on the Internet Archive, which is a great, um, a great history of the, of the early game. Um, so Webb Ellis didn't but, invent it then. So, so what? Tell me, but obviously the rugby, the rugby game then, did become. Sorry, Josh, go on. I, said, yeah, I was just thinking. It says a lot about sort of people of the cloth at the time that he had a massive reputation for cheating at sport and then ended up being an Anglican minister. <laughs> like, that seems like a totally natural career path to me. Brilliant. Well, it's, it's uh, yeah, you could say it's um, kind of symptomatic of certain elements <laughs> in the Church of England. Yeah. Uh, so, if, you, if that were inclined, yeah. So, so. How did it proliferate so much then? Why would you know what? Because obviously there was this game where, because as you said, there were lots of games that existed around that time which involved picking up the ball, running with the ball, kicking the ball. Why was it? Why did it become known as rugby? And and, and because, how did that proliferate? Yeah. You know, um, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things is that why rugby in the around the town of rugby in the town itself there was a strong tradition of these folk football type games, right? So it's so you can see uh, there was um, you know in uh, in the 18th century there was people warned off from playing football in the town and there were matches between the villages for state money and stuff like that in the 1800s. So 
there was a strong tradition there. So you can see where the school got it from. It wasn't as though the school suddenly thought of this great idea involving a ball and two teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that rugby had, which even the most prestigious public schools like Eton and Harrow didn't have, was um, Tom Brown School Games. Ah, yes. The, oh. the, the, uh, the novel that started the tradition of schoolboy novels, uh, it was... Published, it was published in 1857, so at the height of the Victorian era. Um, huge bestseller. Uh, it was a Harry Potter of its day. And um, if you can find the time and the will to live to work your way through Tom Brown's school because <laughs> it's, it's, it's bought, basically you read it to try and find the rugby match. And it doesn't take place about 17 pages in, by which time you're losing the will to live. And then after the match, it just it just goes on and on and on. So, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, for the Victorians, they thought it was great. It was it was a Harry Potter of its time. Harry Potter is, uh, let's just say, it, it 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 has very similar themes to to Tom Brown. The the the, the outside kid goes the outsider kid goes to uh, public school. Uh, he's not liked, but he makes some he makes a couple of friends who are very dear to him. They fight the bullies and all the rest of it. Um, just that there's no magic or Quidditch in, in Tom Brown, <laughs> uh, but it's that, it had that same same effect. Massive bestseller, and of course, at the heart of it is uh, the game the game that Tom Brown plays when he gets to the school of rugby, which is really um, uh, far away the best part of the book. It's really excitingly described, and you know you get carried away in it. And as there was a because uh, at the t- at the t- 1850s, 1860s, big period of uh, interest in sports and games, big revival of team sports, uh, and the various types of football that started to be codified. The Football Association uh, would be founded in 1863, but there are already people trying to... Clubs are already being formed around the country. And But Tom Brown School race had this great example, and people said, we want to play rugby. This is... I've read the book. It just sounds fantastic. Why can't we play this game? And so that's kind of just triggered off a, a chain reaction. Man, is it as simple as that? The subject. Well, I suppose yeah. it is. I suppose you know, it's the, there's there's long history of popular culture translating into even more popular culture. I suppose so that's a not surprising. But I suppose was it that there was old on top of that were old rugbyans kind of going around the country and because the rail network would have been set up around this time, wouldn't it? And and they would have been travelling to yeah. games and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and they, um, the other thing about rugby, and which is still... Uh, neither of you went to rugby school, did you? No. No, no I didn't. <laughs> Very much not. I didn't think you had, but I just wanted to check. There's a uh, rugby school today and always had a reputation for the... Uh, shall we say, there's a sense of confidence amongst its its pupils right. over and above the natural self-confidence that people get when they go to public school. Yeah. And... And in fact, they were certainly in the 19th century. They were uh, they were roundly hated by a lot of people at other schools because they were, <laughs> they were seen as arrogant gits, basically. Um, but they had that self confidence amongst them that you know, rugby school was the best school. We had the, we had the best education, and we got the best game. And so, unlike the people who went to uh, Eton and played the Eton Wall game or the field game or Harrow School. Rugby felt that people who've been to rugby felt that their game um, was about much more than sport. It was about you know how a chap becomes a man, 
moral education. Uh, it's not just a it's not just a game. It's a philosophy of life to them. So they went out and they said, right, we want to play uh, we want to play our game because our game is the right way. And the other schools really they didn't they, they didn't have that kind of arrogance or self assuredness about their own spot. So you don't get so even at the even in the 1860s, 1870s, you didn't get Eton football clubs or Harrow football clubs, but rugby football clubs spread right right around uh, right around the country very very quickly. What's fascinating about that is how similar all of that stuff is to the sort of slightly over the top bollocks that they spout today about rugby kind of you know making a man of you and building men of good you know it's it's remarkable to think that sort of stuff is basically yeah, ingrained for a minute yeah. exactly the same isn't it? Yeah. another thing that's interesting about that is you mentioned there uh, tony about the um fa being set up in 1863 and if i'm right that was based on cambridge university came up with the cambridge rules which was the precursor of that i think and they that that forbade players to run with the ball in their hands didn't it yeah, and they, it also um, stopped. It yeah, wouldn't so. allow people to be hacked or tackled or held. Yeah, well, it's quite a. Um, uh, yeah, no, well, it's 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 that well, it, it it's actually there's a whole load of shenanigans that went on with the formation of the football association, because at one point they actually agreed to play a type of rugby rules. All right, where you could run with the ball, but then um, the following because they had about seven meetings, I think, to decide on the rules. Unlike the RFU, which just had one, and then that was it. Let's go. In eighteen seventy-one, <laughs> the, um, hey, the they FA... don't they don't do that now. Christ Almighty! But the FA tried to bring all the different football codes together and get one code, and then the I don't know. You can call it sort of politics of the small p. I think partly because of the the hostility towards rugby school because of the way it was perceived by other schools. There was a very determined faction. Who wanted to? Who didn't want rugby rules, um, and wanted to play a a game with less handling, not no handling, because um, nobody played that, but with less with less handling. Certainly, didn't want hacking, despite the fact that hacking was very common at Eton and Harrow anyway. And hacking uh, was was, and was booting at the shins, wasn't it? Basically, shin, kicking shins. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, and this was a mark of uh, at rugby school. This was a mark of what was a man. If you if you look at uh, paintings or drawings of rugby school football in the middle of the 19th century, you'll notice they're all wearing white trousers. And you think, why should anybody wear white long trousers when they're playing a game of rugby? And the reason was because it showed up the blood. So the more blood you had on your trousers, it meant the more you'd either uh, been injured or you'd inflicted injury on somebody else. And so it was a mark of honour to wear your white trousers and come back off the pitch and the, the whole bottom half will be uh, will be um, a red colour because of the amount of blood that yeah, you shed I'd, or got I do from love that else. idea that this hacking thing, and it's Josh's point as well, that that sort of philosophical divide between the two games is still the same now. And when you look back at it when about the hacking, there's, I read somewhere, I've got a quote here, and this, you might tell me from a historical point, from you being a historian, tell me this is wrong, but... There's a quote I've got here from Francis Maul Campbell, who was a member of the Blackheath Club when they were arguing about what rules to bring in at the FA. And he wanted hacking, obviously, and he wanted to stay with rugby. And he said, to eliminate hacking would do away with all the courage and pluck from the game. And then 
he hammered home his point by also slandering a nation by saying, I will be bound over to bring over a lot of Frenchmen who would beat you lot with a week's practice. <clears throat> yeah, so exactly. it's interesting that basically this whole thing about, well, obviously not my languages, but something language like, well, obviously, you know, big Jesses are going to play this game where you can't kick the crap out of each other's legs. And yeah. that's just not the way to be if you're a proper Englishman sort of thing. Basically, yeah. people have been saying the game's gone soft for like 100 years. <laughs> 150 like years. Ever, yeah. ever since the first game, I think. When it came off after the first game, it's gone soft now. There's not enough blood on your trousers. Game's gone, lad. Game's gone. Yeah. Um, and so there was... So to, to go back to my original point before I got, got on to this. The, so the, the FA basically changed... Uh, at one point, voted for rugby-type rules. Then the following week, it changed the mind, led by uh, Charles Alcock, who later became the secretary of the FA, and uh, another guy called Ebenezer Cobb Moore. He was actually from Hull. And his Hull's only, oh, <laughs> yeah, only oh. contribution to the history of association of football that's in any way meaningful, um, which I'm sure will get me in trouble with <laughs> all, my, all my friends who are Hull City supporters. Um, the story goes as well at that FA meeting that a load of clubs voted to ratify the new rules and then left. Yeah, they basically they all went. Yeah, we'll vote for this one. Right, we're all now leaving the yeah. FA. Basically, yeah. Well, that's what. Well, well, Blackheath, well, Blackheath were one of the founder members of the FA, and they um, they were there at the meeting. Were outvoted, uh, but still remained members. But never played a game under football association rules. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was that most of the, well, maybe not most, but a considerable number of the teams that were loyal to the football association didn't really play the FA rules anyway. So you had, um, I think the first game played under the FA rules was actually won by two touchdowns to nothing. <laughs> because, because, yeah, Bar- because I think I think Barnes, who uh, Barnes Club, who later became an out-and-out rugby club, uh, played under the FA, one of the founder members of the FA, but played under football rules or soccer rules, but didn't really like soccer rules, so they allowed touchdowns. And Royal Engineers, who won the FA Cup in the 1870s, they played their own version of soccer, whereby you could actually run with the ball in your hands. Um, so, and even the FA's rules themselves allowed outfield players to catch the ball uh, on the full and knock it down with a hand. So, the idea that this is just a you know that the games can be separated into kicking games and handling games was just not true at that time. Do we know when that separation finally happened, when there was a recognisable you don't pick the ball up with your hands and you lot do? Was that much later? um, I think, off the top of my head, I think it was was around about four or five years later that the FA outlawed catching the ball with your hands. Um, So we're up to about 1870 then-ish. Yeah, just before the formation of of the RFU in 1871. But the other thing that really consolidated the two games is the fact that the FA started the FA Cup in 1871. And they that was a way that they could differentiate themselves from the rugby clubs. And so their rules consolidated around the idea that the idea was to dribble the ball. Did the FA um, start paying straight away? No, that wasn't until um, 1885, right. um, which we'll get onto because that had yeah, a huge sure. impact on the well, uh, yeah. that had a huge impact on the future of rugby. When we t- you mentioned rules there and the codification, the kind of schism between the two sports started then but not quite as cleanly as as you've said to not quite as cleanly as people might think what was happening then with the rugby game as well as far as i understand is that 
when teams were turning up, they were kind of agreeing, even though they were all playing rugby in inverted commas, they were <clears throat> they were all agreeing rules before they turned up. Like, like when you've played pool in a pub and you go, <laughs> yeah. are, we, are we playing two-shot carry or not? And everyone looks at you like, you're mad because nobody plays two-shot carry sort of thing. <laughs> there was a bit of that going on, wasn't there? So then... Yeah, exactly, it, yeah. And then in 1870, I've got that Edwin Ash of Richmond basically put a letter in the newspaper saying... Those who play the rugby-type game should meet to form a code of practice as various clubs to play rules which differ from others, which makes the game difficult to play. Thankfully, they've sorted all that rule stuff out now and it's yeah, not difficult totally to play fine. at all. Yeah, there's yeah. no, no controversy about rules or no. interpretation at all. The thing well, is, the everybody thing... was still really flexible even later. Like, Wasn't it on the first Lions tour that like they played like half a dozen Aussie rules games just because, like, why not? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Was, and as long as yeah. you all agree, it's a gentleman's game. Yeah, I think they actually won one of them as well, which <laughs> seems mad. Yeah. Well, they actually, yeah, the team that they beat was Port Adelaide, who are actually now in the Australian, who have actually won the Australian Football League Championship. So <laughs> is that true? Oh, actually, that yeah, yeah. Um, so, so they, uh, I can't remember what year they won it, uh, but yeah, so they, um, oh. they've actually been beaten by a rugby team. Uh, at their own game but yeah so it was much more relaxed and the the difference between the two games was still relatively easy to overcome so um, both Burnley and Preston North End you know great soccer clubs Mm. down the down the century started off as rugby teams and then switched to soccer uh, in the late 1870s you can argue that um, some that, of those football teams have never really moved on either. <laughs> well, that, well that, yeah, you that, couldn't that's possibly a, comment. That's another, yeah. problem. That's, a, that's, a, that's another problem that faces um, so. uh, soccer in uh, East Lancashire. But <laughs> but yeah, so there, it wasn't a um, it wasn't a hard and fast divide. So you get things like Lincoln City play Hull FC, <laughs> at, but they decide to have a, a hybrid game halfway between soccer and a halfway between rugby. Uh, and this, this went on until the late 1870s, but, you know, well after the RFU and the FA had been formed. So there was a lot of um, uh, flexibility because basically people just wanted to play football in its most unique mm. sense. And if that's the way you got a game by changing your rules, then fair enough. So January 26, 1871... This meeting that Mr. Edwin Ash wanted occurred at the Pall Mall restaurant in Charing Cross. Interesting, yeah. that's the same birthday as me. I've got the same birthday as the RFU, it seems. Um, presumably not the same year, though. No, well, no, yeah. I don't think so. Uh, the clubs. Anyway, Lee, you look pretty decent. I'm not, not doing bad, yeah. Anna. Yeah, yeah, so the clubs, I love this. The, the clubs in attendance were Blackheath, Richmond, Ravenscourt Park, West Kent, Marlborough Nomads, Wimbledon Hornets, Gypsies, Civil Service, Law Club. Wellington College, College, sorry, Guy's Hospital, Flamingos. I'm so sorry they don't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, Cla- people get, and people are getting on their fucking high horses about Bristol Bears and this all that. This week, shit. this very week, yeah. This very they, week. They should Flamingos, come on. Yeah. Clapham Rovers, Harlequin FC, of course, we're still around. King's College, St. Paul's, Queen's House, Lausanne, which is in Switzerland, so I don't understand that. Yeah. that. Um, <laughs> Addison, Mohicans. Talk about cultural appropriation. Oh, yeah. um, and Belsize Park. Um, apparently a notable absentee was Wasps, and the story goes their representative went to the wrong pub. I have heard that one before, yeah. They, is well, that, Tori, you're probably going to debunk this uh, as a historian now, are you? Go on. I don't know. It may, no, it, it, it may be true, but on the other <laughs> hand, there are lots of stories about famous meetings, famous rugby meetings, where allegedly people have missed because they went to the pub or went to the wrong pub. 
So you've got um, in the famous meeting in 1893 when the debate on broken time was had. There's a there's a lot of stories about how a lot of Northerns got lost on the way to the to the hotel and end up in another pub. And then I've heard that Morley didn't join the Northern Union in 1895 because they couldn't find the George Hotel in Huddersfield. Which is insane because if you've ever been there, the George Hotel is right it's outside. Pretty, it's pretty hard to miss, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you can fall into it from the railway station. Um, you know what happened with those northern? What, those northerners going to the eighteen ninety three meeting? They were all stood looking through estate agents' windows, going, "Look at the bloody yes, price yes, of that!" Yes. That's that's what they were doing. <laughs> so it's a common theme that people. I don't know what it is about rugby and pubs, but for some reason, people think it's easy to get distracted by pubs. Although wasps have found themselves accidentally in Coventry now, so they have got. So <laughs> yeah. it is a tradition of theirs to end up wandering off course a bit. So yeah, that's well, true. Yeah. Well, I heard the, the version of that. I heard was that you went to the wrong pub and got smashed, and then by the time he realised he was in the wrong pub, he was too pissed to walk to the other one. So <laughs> yeah. which is a which is a better story, but it's probably much more of a bullshit story. <laughs> it's so. the same. It's the same. What have got? It's, it's the same. Uh, it's the same meme about yeah. meetings. <laughs> it's almost like these people didn't really want to go to meetings, and they just wanted to go to the pub. And <laughs> well, I think I th- it's the other way around. Though, I think it's because. I think it's when people either probably weren't invited to the meeting and they say, oh, yeah, we were invited, but we went to the wrong pub. <laughs> so, Classic stuff. yeah, and just, just, just to, I just want to dwell on rules for a little bit, only because it's quite interesting. Again, when you talk about echoes into the present time, you know, the, the experimental law variations, changes in scrum laws, all that stuff are constantly debated in rugby <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah, has always been the same, hasn't it? I mean, in eighteen, uh, the first rules were codified in eighteen seventy one. In eighteen seventy seven, players <laughs> were reduced from twenty to fifteen. The scoring system, which was zero points for a try, and which you then had to convert. Obviously, we still use that today, well beyond its logical use. The oval ball became compulsory in eighteen ninety two. So all of the, you know, you're twenty years into the game before they say you have to play with an oval ball now. Yeah. In 1893, tries became three points, so were worth more than convergence for the first time. And I didn't realise that tries stayed as three points until 1971. Yeah. I thought it was, you well, know, four points for a try was always in my, I mean, rugby league it still is, but it has always been in my mind as being a thing that lasts forever. But it, that's relatively late, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, the other thing, that's even, in a sense, is even more surprising is that drop goals are worth four points, so worth more than any of the former scoring <laughs> until 1947. Wowee. To be oh, fair, yeah, so. a drop goal is fucking hard. And it does always seem a little bit harsh that it's like, yeah, that's just the same as a fairly straightforward penalty. <laughs> well, I think that's true with that. Maybe that's a question about penalties. But, yeah, well. But, you know, that's, uh, but that, this, this is the thing. This is how the game, the debates in the game went. And it's, to some extent, the debates that were going on in the 1880s or 1870s even about how the game should be played are still the ones that are being had today. I think the other thing to bear in mind as well is that when you think about rugby, it's not just what happened uh, from the birth of the RFU in 1871, because you've <laughs> also got Aussie rules started in 1860s, a variation on rugby school rules. Mm. American football and Canadian football were both, you know, both started off as, as rugby. So, you, so this rugby, unlike soccer, which after after the 1870s basically stayed the same. Rugby, there's always a oh, rugby derived game. There's always this huge debate about how best to play the game, how we can improve the game, which is one of the things I think why it's, you know, as a historian, it's actually a lot more interesting than soccer. And it's, and it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because football, soccer, even now, still massively resists anything 
that changes the fundamental nature of the simplistic rules that they've got. Whereas rugby, which is, if you to ask people, seen as the more stuffy, conservative, middle-class, sort of Victorian type of game, it's been quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, I mean, for a, I think for a long time, rugby union in particular stayed, well, the fact that tries were worth <coughs> up until 1971, uh, it stayed quite conservative. But certainly, I mean, you look over the last 30 years and the game's changed beyond all recognition. Mm. Um, you know, you just look at... I mean, I think it's the case now. You look at the number of scrums in an international match. There are now less scrums in an international rugby union match than there are in an international rugby league match, which is, mm. would have been inconceivable. God, uh, I didn't realise that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in the last six nations, there was about an average of 12 or 13. Uh, which is, it's probably not it's probably not that much less. It's probably about the same as what you get in an international league match. You've mentioned rugby league there, Tony. So we obviously rugby then gets codified with the RFU in seventy one. We've talked about the changes it went through. It basically spreads across the country and becomes incredibly popular, doesn't it? It's not. It's not. Is that an, it's not an overstatement to say yeah. it's incredibly oh, popular? No, it's it was more, it was more popular than soccer, and everybody acknowledged that, and that's one of the reasons why. Soccer actually appeared to be much more innovative and forward-thinking, like starting the FA Cup, starting uh, internationals before rugby, because it felt the need that it had some, it had something to prove. It wanted to overcome the disadvantage that it had uh, because of rugby. Oh no, is it everywhere? No, sure, stay and sort that out. We can have dinner another time. Amazing. Whether it's cancelled plans. <laughs> Get in the kitchen and calm down. Or the need for a quick, convenient distraction. Introducing Goodfellas Mini Pizzas. Four mini pizzas made with respect that cook in 11 minutes. Goodfellas Minis. Embrace the unexpected. Acast recommends podcasts we love. Changemakers is a new podcast series with me, Claire McKenna, talking to people who stand up, speak out, or challenge us to think a little differently. It's about the greater good, families and children, respecting their own individuality. In the next couple of years, like I hope I never have to have conversations about racism ever again. Like, I just want to get to the stage where, you know, people are just people. Nobody's pooling the resources together and actually being able to show how much of an impact it will make when people do come together. Changemakers with Claire McKenna. Search for it now wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the world's best podcasts, including the David McWilliams podcast, I'm Grandmam, and the one you're listening to right now. So off it went, and obviously then we get into, you know, there are, there are, let's talk about rugby league. You know, there are a few banal and mundane words and phrases that have caused some serious historical ructions. Um, appeasement, the Beatles. Yes. <laughs> British exit from the European Union, mundane things like that. Mm. But surely one of the most mundane that's ever caused ructions and, and cultural ructions is is the term broken time payments. <laughs> uh, you would yeah. never believe that something as, as banal sounding as that could end up basically causing a cultural <laughs> shift in a sport that we've still not really recovered from on either side. So do you want to, to, to I'll, let, I'll let you as a historian explain what, what that is for those who don't know? Well, I, th- I think... <laughs> It's a, it's a consequence of the popularity of rugby. So by the time you get to about 1880, so 10 years after the RFU had been formed, rugby is not just uh, popular because of Tom Brown's school days anymore. It's gone way beyond that. And, you know, Britain is a newly industrialising country. People are flocking into the towns to work in factories. And in 
most of those towns across the north of England, the southwest, South Wales, um, the East Midlands, you've got the game. When people move into those towns to get jobs, the game they take up is rugby. So it becomes a a game that encompasses all classes, not just people who went to uh, public school or grammar school or the university. Everybody <clears> from <throat> yeah from doctors to dockers. Um, but that brings its own pressure because you've got uh, players, you've got a, a you've got players who uh, aren't trained in the public school ethos, and mm. so they they're you know as was the case in sport in general uh, in the 18th century. There's a, a conception that if you're really good at sport, well, you deserve to get some reward for it. Maybe not professionalism, but certainly payments. You also get huge crowds that are coming now. You know, you get mm. uh, 10, 15,000 people going to rugby matches by the early 1880s. Brings in a lot of money. So people think, well, where's all this money going? Um, and the other problem <laughs> is that players, uh, they're working full time. Uh, and to play at the top level, at least... Uh, you've got to train, you've got to go uh, up and down the country to, to to play in big matches. They have to take time off work so they lose money. Was Saturday a working day then, or was this just more the training time? Well, up until... what This is the interesting thing about how all these things come together to make, uh, make sport very popular in the late 19th century. In 1874, you get what's known as the Saturday Half Holiday Act, where up until then, pretty much everybody worked six days a week and would knock off at six o'clock on Saturday. Mm. 1874, most people in factories um, get Saturday afternoons off, they knock off at one o'clock, which is, it's, that's a historical reason why traditionally um, football and rugby matches have always kicked off at three o'clock uh, mm. on a Saturday afternoon, although obviously that's changed because the sky and all the rest of it. But that's the reason for that tradition. Um, and so you've got a huge amount of money, public interest in the game. And, you know, quite naturally, people think, well, we should be getting some money from this. And the clubs themselves, they want the best players. And they've got, you know, regional competitions that are becoming important, like the Yorkshire Cup. Uh, and most counties uh, uh, have cup competitions by that time. What I've never um, understood about this is that player poaching thing between teams up north, because obviously I want, I want the best player from Dewsbury and I'm Wakefield or whatever. Yeah. Was that more of a problem up north? Were they more ambitious up north like that than they were down south? Is that what started this problem? Was or did, did people down south tend um, to stick with the clubs they were in, or do we not know? Or it's it it worked in a different way down south because you get um, uh, I mean clubs like Harlequins became fairly well known for by the eighteen nineties for poaching the best players from other clubs. Right. But it was kind of it's Quinn, so you know, it's it's a different type of thing, and also they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't have offered uh, cash money to those players. They, you know, the way these things work, it's right. You know, you can it opens doors for jobs or you know business opportunities and things like that. It, it's, it's yeah, okay. It's, it's a different, it's a different culture. Yeah, sorry, thing. I cut you off there. But, I was just no, no, but that's true. I think it's a good, that's a good point because these things were going on right across the gate. It's just that because they were taking place in industrial areas, you know, South Wales is exactly the same to North of England, um, it became much more apparent. And the other problem that there was, uh, and this is a mark of what Britain was like at the time, was that many of the teams uh, in the North, in South Wales, became really good at the game. 
And within <laughs> by the early 1880s, um, the big clubs like Bradford, your Bradford's, Huddersfield, Wigan's were the equal of the big teams in the South, such as Blackheath, Richmond, Oxford and Cambridge. And that started to cause problems because it seemed that the um, the natural order of rugby was being threatened by the fact that, you know, the people, there's a phrase, huh. um, the people who would learnt it with their Latin grammar at school uh, <laughs> didn't like the fact, uh, you know, there were teams of cotton factory workers and miners turning up and are winning. And so the, the the best example of that... Now, you see, people would say, Tony, people would say, Tony, you're a disgusting, chippy Yorkshireman for saying something like that, but you're a historian, so it's obviously evidently true. It's... Well, you don't have to take my word for it. It's <laughs> what people wrote at the time. Well, that's why I'm, I'm clarifying this so that we don't get, no, we don't know as a yeah. about I've got it. To say, as it, yeah, as it, yeah, you're right. I, I am a proper historian, and <laughs> I, you know, I do all the academic stuff and what have you. What staggered me when I first started researching the history of rugby was the fact that people came out and said this in the open. <laughs> so you've got um, so you've got people like Frank Mitchell who played for um, played for Cambridge. Uh, was also great cricketer, uh, captain. Um, I think captain England. He played for South Africa because you could swap between teams. Uh, Frank Mitchell actually said, um, "Why should why should we allow the working man player to take over our game? It's come from the universities and the schools, and we're not going to give it up without a fight. And if the working man loves it so much, why didn't he go off and play his own game?" <laughs> and yeah, which you'd never, people would never say it publicly nowadays, but that's in the 1880s, 1890s, people were coming out with this thing about, you know, why should, why should these working men take over our game? They're, they're ignorant. They don't have to play it properly. <laughs> they don't understand the nuances. Um, and again, that's something that's still got, not so no. much working wise, but you do still get the people who play the game in the correct way. That argument still gets trotted out now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, and again, it's like this, this idea about, you know, going back to the point you made earlier on about you know, rugby being a force for moral education. These are, you know, then it's morally superior to all other sports. These are things that go right back to the origins of the game. They've been right. there for such a long time. Um, and so those type of attitudes just exacerbated the problem of what, you know, how do you contain these two... Uh, yeah, these two different conceptions, two different cultures, two different types of people in one game. And the thing that really, in a sense, the, the thing that started, the, the, the cracks had already opened, mm. but the thing that started to drive them apart um, was actually what happened in soccer. Because in 1885, soccer legalised professionalism. There was a there was a bit of a debate in um, just like rugby. Uh, there was a bit there was a debate about uh, whether players should be paid money. Initially, the football association said, "No, no, no, we're an amateur game. You know, it's about our principles, playing the game for the sake of the game, and all that." And then the, that's uh, the last time anyone in football ever said that. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and then, the, but the clubs in the north said, "Well, we want to pay our players. What's wrong with it?" And they said, right, if you don't allow us to pay our players, we're going to form our own British Football Association break away. At that point, the FA said, oh, hang on a minute. We don't want to, you know, we don't need to go. Obviously, because their power would be diminished. They'd lose their authority. And so they decided that they would allow professionalism. Exactly the same debate going on, exactly the same time in rugby, but 
they had the time to, the leaders of rugby in the RFU had time to see what happened to soccer. Soccer leapt in first, made the decision, and uh, as Arthur Budd, who was the pro- later became president of the RFU, noted, as soon as they'd legalised professionalism, not a single club that was composed of ex-public school or university players ever again appeared in an FA Cup final, and not even in the FA Cup final. There was only one of those teams that ever appeared again in an FA Cup semi-final. You're allowing people the wrong sort of stuff exactly. to win things. Yeah, they would... Yeah, that's right. And they would be wow. they feared that they would be pushed aside, which they were in soccer. And so the RFU the Fuck following yeah. year said, We're not having this because we don't want to lose our game to these uh, basic to working men professionals as they call them. And therefore our game is going to become amateur. Because before that there were no regulations one way or the other. And in fact teams did pay broken time payments. Uh, to players for when they went away, um, quite openly. Well, when they tried to they tried to pitch the technicality, didn't they? It was sort of you know, look, we're not really paying them to play. We're compensating. We're compensating them for the time ex- they have to miss. It's expenses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, That's right. It was expenses for time lost to having to yeah. uh, go on a match. Uh, but the RFU said no. We're not even having that. Um, we're going to be re- remain a strictly. We're going to become a strictly amateur game. So they, the re- they rewrote the bylaw, didn't they? Pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea that rugby had always been amateur is just not true. It, it was really uh, instituted in 1886. And they said, you can't receive any payment, you can't work for a club, you can't receive gifts, uh, you can't receive anything from the club for playing. The only thing you can get is strictly defined expe- second-class rail fare expenses <laughs> to travel to and from a match. Um, and that, as soon as that was implemented, the game started to crack wide open. And then, in 18, which led to 1895, when finally the Northern Clubs got completely fed up and decided that they'd fancy doing this themselves. Huddersfield, Batley, Dewsbury, Bradford, Manningham, I think you later became Bradford City FC. City, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Leeds, Halifax, Brighouse Rangers, Hull, Liversedge, Hunslet, Wakefield announced they were resigning from the Yorkshire Union. Then did the Lancashire Clubs follow not long after that? Yeah, what happened was that there was a, there was a, because it got it got so complicated and political that uh, because the debate lasted so long from eighteen eighty six to eighteen ninety five, all sorts of other things started to come uh, start to get involved. So the fact that clubs couldn't make money because if you were suspected or accused of uh, if you were suspected of paying a and found guilty of paying a player. Uh, that player would be suspended and quite likely your club would be suspended. So you couldn't play any games. So, you know, these were commercial organisations by this time. And it meant they had no revenue coming in. And so the clubs felt, we've got to do something about this. Then it was felt that, you know, it was almost like a case of human rights that if you're a player, why shouldn't you be allowed to get paid for it? I mean, after all, music hall artists, uh, they were paid for doing it. They weren't held to amateur standards. (laughs) And this is an idea that people said so. You know, people come and see know, the best Attili or these big musical artists because they provide the best in entertainment, just like players do. So what's the difference in terms of them being paid? Um, and all these things kind of came to a head in 1893 when the Northern Clubs proposed that the RFU should recognise broken time payments, whereby players would be compensated for taking time off work. Lots of shenanigans went on behind the scenes. There was all kinds of um, um, uh, manoeuvring to make sure you know all the pro amateur clubs 
uh, went there, and obviously the northern clubs had to come down from. Uh, yeah, because there are stories, aren't there, about that they, they made it difficult for them to get <clears throat> trains on time to come down from uh, north yeah, to vote and all that. I mean, is, is that true? Uh, no, I'm not. Well, in fact, what happened? No, because the uh, in Yorkshire they hired special train to take people <laughs> down to London for the meeting. This <laughs> That's is such brilliant. A, such a big deal, yeah. Um, so it started off at Leeds and went around, you know, like Batley, Dewsbury, Huddersfield, Halifax, and picked up all the delegates on the way. But obviously, because it's held in London, there are a lot of clubs um, in the South East. I mean, it's been a historic base, really, for, for the RFU. Um, it was supposed to be down. Interestingly enough, um, there were a lot of complaints about the fact that the Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge universities, each college in those universities had a separate vote. Which, <laughs> like a university challenge now, the swine. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, why do Oxford and Cambridge have all these different things? Why, why are they just one university? And uh, mm. bizarrely, and this is a big issue in the north as well. So, why, why, are these, why do Oxford and Cambridge get all these votes? Bizarrely, in the recent dispute between the university lecturers and um, the university bosses, the same complaint came up <laughs> that the university bosses uh, were being given a vote for each of them who were heads of um, Oxbridge colleges instead of Oxford and Cambridge just having one vote each. So they outweighed everybody else. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, and that thing sometimes, about, things, sometimes things don't change. Rugby union being an elite game and, and, you know, I'm from a rugby league country and I grew up basically told to hate rugby union and it was useless and awful and that they hated us. And, but when you look at it and you see it was like a sort of cultural war. I mean, rugby yeah. league wasn't allowed in the armed forces till the 1990s, I don't think. You know, the, the, the entire right, sort yeah. of mechanism of British elites just shut rugby league out completely. It was completely shut out from sort of British society, apart from where it existed, I suppose. Wasn't it also yeah. massively hypocritical as well? Because like the RFU was like paying players to go on the first Lions tour and all this sort of shit. So it was wasn't really about cash anyway. It's, it just feels like it was about it was, control. It was about, it was about who was receiving the cash. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in fact, the the RFU got it in the neck from the Scottish rugby who felt that the RFU was soft on professionalism because they allowed players to be paid expenses while on tour. So there was this. So they didn't. So there was this ongoing battle between the Scottish uh, Rugby Union and the RFU about who was the most amateur. Um, so and the Scots. A debate that, to be fair, the Scottish Rugby Union has been conclusively winning for most of the last thirty <laughs> years. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and amateur in more than just cash <clears> affairs. <throat> yeah. But yeah, so they so they, they didn't. The Scots hate didn't uh, like playing touring sides because they felt that. Obviously, if you're on tour, therefore, you, where are you, how are you earning a living? You must be a professional, um, which had consequences for them uh, you know, refusing to play the All Blacks and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, so, so, the, so 1893, lot, the, the vote for, went against Broken Time, and the RFU decided to start, effectively start picking off teams in the North one by one. So Huddersfield was suspended, and then the following year, you get a situation in Lancashire, where they just started a Lancashire League, where um, you get Salford suspended, Wigan suspended, and then by the end of 1894, there's something like eight teams out of the 12 that are either suspended or being investigated. Uh, eight teams out, sorry, eight of the 12 Lancashire League teams are either suspended or being investigated for, profession, for professionalism. Good lads. Uh, 
And so <laughs> the thing goes, com- you know, so it's completely out of control. And what really um, makes the Northern clubs minds up is that in December 1894, the RF, uh, it's proposed at an RFU special meeting that anyone who's accused of professionalism or taking payments or making payments should be suspended immediately until they can prove that they're not guilty. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's a complete violation. The land of habeas corpus, eh? Yeah, well, it doesn't exist. Um, and the Northern Club's thought, right, this is it. We're just going to, they're going uh, to pick us off one by one. Uh, we need to act together. And then, so over the next, basically, eight months, uh, the Yorkshire and Lancashire teams came together and culminated in meeting at the George Hotel at the end of August 1895 and forming the Northern Rugby Football Union, which kind of, uh, it shaped the rest of rugby history, not just in Britain, but around the world. Yeah, and it's... Um, the England national team suffered as a result of this, didn't it? Because people like Dickie Lockwood, who was a legendary player, I think he went to Wakefield Trinity, didn't he? Yeah, that's after, right, yeah. After this. And the England, the England national team was basically shattered by the loss of all these players who basically took money up north. And when we talk about Wales in another episode, we can talk about how in the 1900s, early 1900s, it seems Wales got much stronger and their nationhood and England yeah. were really suffering and stuff like that. But I suppose it was... There's something interesting about that Victorian amateur muscular Christianity commitment to these Corinthian values and the class structure, really, that says, mm. I don't care what the cost is, I don't care how much money I'm losing, and I don't care how this affects my national team. This is the correct thing to do from us who are in this position of power, and that's the end of it. Yeah, that was our attitude entirely. And because it's clear that, you know, if there'd have been... Just like the Football Association, if, if the leadership of the RFU had wanted to compromise, it would have been easier to do so. But they were determined that they weren't going to give an inch on the question of amateurism versus professional. It must have been so frustrating being a northern delegate going to those meetings, going, look, I just want to work with you here. Do you know what I mean? They was like, no, yeah. no, no. That's it, must it. Have and been, that's what it must have been the worst. I mean, the minutes must be incredible. You know, no, I'm not having it. You know, it's <laughs> Yeah, and it's not. I mean, the thing is, I mean, there was a, there was a significant body of opinion in the north that felt that they should they should split anyway. Right. But effectively, the northern clubs were forced into it by the intransigence of the rugby union. And it, I think that it's what that did to rugby is it goes beyond simply forcing the northern clubs out because. <clears throat> One of the things that it kind of came to symbolise, when you look at how rugby developed, we talk about this in, uh, in, when we talk about other countries, but you look at the way that rugby developed in other countries where it became a mass spectator spot, a popular spot, like in South Wales, Australia, New Zealand. Um, they, were, they didn't have this attitude towards payments didn't exist uh, in those countries. They were much more, they probably supported amateurism in principle, but they were much more relaxed about whether pay players should be paid or, or not and the you know employment status and stuff like that. It was actually the RFU were the in a sense the odd man out mm. amongst all the different rugby unions. But the problem was that the RFU were the leaders of rugby union. And so if you're mm. the odd man out but you're the most powerful man out, you can do whatever <laughs> the hell you want and other people will generally bend to your will. Which is what happened. Um but you can see it's quite easy to see 
another way in which this could have resolved itself whereby the RFU well, the RFU could have said yes to broken time payments and none of this would have ever happened and the, the game might have stood a chance of retaining its lead that it had over soccer or if you go mm. back a bit early they may have said mm. they may have gone before soccer and said okay we'll allow professionalism in a limited way because that's obviously the way that you know modern sport the modern entertainment industry is going and then you know, we would have been we would have been here discussing how come soccer is restricted to so few countries, <laughs> and rugby's played all. You know, it's rugby yeah, getting too boring because really it's played by every sort of country. Sliding doors moment. Yeah, what's yeah, what I, what, it, what, precisely. Yeah, what's interesting is is that well for me is that rugby league obviously then becomes what well, becomes you know the Northern Rugby Football Union becomes professional and then they undergo a number of rule changes over the next few years. They drop it to thirteen players. The play of the ball comes in because they want to in. Well, I think, in theory, make it more entertaining, a less complicated sport, the ball's available more. And you can say what you like, whether you like that about rugby league or whatever, that's what they do. Yeah, it's the rapidity of those... Because it's what, like 10, 12 years they'd had, yeah, 13 players playing the ball, no line-outs. Like, it felt, it almost feels like they've gone, well, fuck it, we've gone this far. Let's just go crazy and... And see what happens. What I find that, is that they, that's been lost to rugby union at that point, isn't and, it? And they created a more interesting, in theory, a more entertaining sport for professional reasons. And yet, that more entertaining sport did not proliferate, apart from in maybe Australia, in a way in which you would have expected it to, if it's been created to be a different sport that's more appealing. In a, in a sense, yeah. I mean, I think one of the the first point to make is that the things that the um, the changes that the, the, the Northern Union brought to the game were things that had already been discussed before the split within rugby right, anyway. Okay. That um, the because remember that rugby went from twenty aside when it first started in eighteen well, when the RFU was formed in eighteen seventy one to fifteen aside in eighteen seventy six seventy seven, um, and certainly by the early eighteen nineties, there's discussions about people suggesting what surely our next step is to move to 13 aside and get rid of the forwards to make it less of a forward game. Um, the play the ball, was set, when it was introduced in 1906 into rugby league, was seen as a kind of return to the, um, to the original RFU rule, whereby if you were tackled, the player was tackled, had to get up, wait for a scrum to form around and then put the ball down on the, on the ground and play it with his foot. Mm. Um, so this was seen as a hey, imagine, imagine bringing the TMO into that by the way yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah the, the games will be lasting for days <laughs> the, so the, um, so in a sense that rugby league's changed and the fact they made the try more important than, than any goals by reducing uh, mm. points for goals to two points <clears> whereas the try stayed at three these are things that had already been discussed in uh, within rugby union before the split, and it's kind of related to also like the Welsh introducing the four-three quarter system to make the game more open and introduce a passing game and things like that. So, in a sense, that the Northern Union reforms were part of that tradition within rugby anyway, and they just um, they decided. I mean, they experimented for a long time, got rid of the lineouts. Uh, they originally thought of going to twelve aside, and that didn't quite work out. Um, but it's very much in the sort of they saw themselves very much in the tradition of rugby and continuing the the reforming um, oh, uh, the, yeah. the reforming if you like the reforming trend in rugby. The other point about so why so the, obviously the question is if you're so smart how can you not rich? 
why didn't all these how, why didn't all these rule changes lead to people suddenly thinking, yeah, this is a really attractive game. I'm gonna I'm gonna become a supporter. I don't think sport works like that because. Um, yeah, well, everyone thinks their own sport is beautiful, don't they? Even if you're into squash yeah, that's right, exactly. You know? it's like, yeah, that's right. It's like beauty is it's like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and um, people uh, identify with the sport because it they, because they feel it tells them something about themselves or it reflects the way they feel about the world. Um, it's much more than simply about what's really attractive. And then, and again, even that is very subjective because, you know, um, you know, some people think that Canadian football is the greatest game in the world or, or Aussie <laughs> rules, things like that, which, you know, to those people it is. They've yeah, been brought yeah. up on it. It's, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's beautiful to them. But um, look how many people watch how... horse racing, the worst sport in the entire world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Formula yeah, One, it's, for it's, example. It's, yeah, <laughs> I'm talking about Formula One. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's a horse race just for the purposes of gambling. There's no, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah um, but so you've got uh, so sport is about much more than rules. And also, when you look at what had happened in British society by that point, in a sense, the the template of British sport had been set by 1900. Soccer became so huge and overpoweringly, overpoweringly popular by 1900. But so in 1901, 101,000 people watched the FA Cup final between Spurs and Sheffield United. And that's just unprecedented. In British history, outside of a royal funeral, mm. you just don't get crowds. <laughs> you, know, you just don't get crowds that size. Uh, maybe a huge... Maybe the Chartist demonstration in 1848 would have had 100,000 people, but that's it. Very different so, vibe. They had better bands on. That's true. So, you, but, you know, you don't get. Um, so, f- football just completely changed the rules, changed the rules of the game, to use a pun. Um, and also, so it had become the most popular game, far and away. And by the time rugby split, it had already kind of become locked into its own. Either geographic and social uh, boundaries. The rugby union uh, in Britain, by and large, defined itself as a uh, a game that was for the universities and the privately educated, grammar school educated, with a fringe of working class participation in the southwest and the mm-hmm. East Midlands. Um, and so it was very. It would have been very difficult for any game to break out of uh, out of those restrictions. Um, even if it was the case that you know people simply gravitated to whichever sport was objectively the most aesthetically pleasing, which um, they couldn't do anyway. So, uh, <clears throat> in a sense, you can you you know you could turn it around and say, well, it's amazing that rugby league spread to Australia and New Zealand, given the strength of the rugby unions mm. in those countries. But it's actually more about the the fact that the the tensions and the pressures that existed within rugby in England because it was a mass spectator sport were the same, certainly in Australia. And in a different way, because obviously New Zealand is a much smaller country, but in a similar way, because it was the dominant sport in New Zealand as well. Um, and everywhere that rugby was played, that these tensions, where it was a mass spectator sport, these tensions came to the fore in Wales as well. But Wales stayed loyal to the rugby union because basically the rugby union uh, tend a blind eye to the fact that the Welsh um, engaged in covert players to play, uh, payers, payments to players. And on that um, note, I think we'll pause it. 
That's a, lov- that's a lovely gallop, actually, through the first 50 or so years of the history of rugby in England. Uh, we'll, no doubt we're going to come back to talk about Wales in more detail in a, in a future episode and maybe come back to talk a little bit more about England and how it developed through the war years and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, Tony, that's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for Indeed. your input. No, thank, no, thank you for inviting me. I've learned things today. Lots of things. <laughs> and that's all we can ask for, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, then. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Josh. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode and uh, let us know what you think about it. But we will look to move on to that. Maybe you can tell us which country you'd like us to do next and we'll, uh, we'll do that in a few weeks' time. Thanks very much and take care, everybody. See you. Take care, everybody. This year, Leaving Certificate students have new choices via the CAO. Whether you're going straight into the world of work or exploring routes to third level, further education and training and apprenticeships offer you flexible, hands-on learning opportunities. The future is full of possibilities. Whatever your ambition, further education and training and apprenticeships can help take you there. Your future is what you make it. Learn more at cao.ie forward slash options. This is an initiative of the Government of Ireland. Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.